1887, the city of Sanford was a bustling hub of commerce. Founded just 10 years prior, Sanford had become the gateway for goods and materials coming into central Florida and Tampa. The city was also the main distribution point that allowed nearly all of central Florida's citrus and produce to reach northern markets. But on the morning of September 22nd, the city's saloon owners, most likely drunk from an all-night binge of whiskey and rum, burned the town to the ground. It became known as the Great Fire of 1887. You're listening to Celery City Stories, the podcast for curious people that explores the incredible history of Sanford and Seminole County, Florida, they didn't teach in school. I'm your host, Dan Ping. The city of Sanford was founded in 1877 and became the major city in central Florida in just 10 short years. In the days before interstates and airplanes, if you wanted to go to Orlando or Tampa, you had to pass through Sanford. The city had eight churches, two schools, a public library, two banks, 30 businesses, and four newspapers. All of this activity was centered around three massive piers that extended out into Lake Monroe. Those piers were serviced by steamships bringing supplies from Jacksonville. Those supplies were transferred to Henry Plant's Railroad, which connected Sanford, Orlando, and Tampa. So with all of this commerce, why would the saloon owners want to burn down the town? You have to understand the political environment in 1887. By that time, the temperance movement to ban alcohol in the United States was gaining ground. Local governments routinely held elections to determine whether the community would ban alcohol, also known as going dry. These efforts would ultimately lead to the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1920 and the prohibition of alcohol in the United States for 13 years. According to Brigitte Stevenson, curator of the Sanford Museum, the Great Fire of 1887 occurred soon after a key moment in Sanford's history. It was kind of a big deal because the night before they voted to make the county dry. Um, and that was a contentious issue about alcohol. We would have, I believe, um, from what I can find, eight more elections um, on the issue whether or not we should be wet or dry, um, whether it was the city or the county. The Women's Christian Temperance Union was leading the nationwide charge to ban alcohol. In Florida, it seems Sanford was ground zero in the battle. We had a very active Women's Christian Temperance Union. So much so that we actually hosted the state conference in, I believe, 1885. And this is a group of women that actively campaigned against alcohol and wanted to make alcohol um, illegal. There's a story, actually, that goes that uh, these women at one point finding out the saloonists and the men who argued to, to keep alcohol to make, you know, allow us to be wet, they printed all their names on these massive sheets of paper and put them in everybody's home so they could publicly shame these are the men that want to to keep alcohol in Sanford. I like to joke it's like an early form of doxing 
(laughs) but they were they were vicious absolutely vicious in regards to it um and the methodists were also a major power source for keeping sanford dry men were involved in the temperance movement but women were the ones leading the fight what did women have against alcohol it's a lot more complex than we think uh we tend to think of it like oh Alcohol people just didn't like drunkenness, but you have to remember the reason why women were advocating for this was because they could not financially be in control. So if they had a husband or a father or even a brother who might have had alcoholism, they had no control of what their husband can or cannot spend his money on. And not only that, you have to remember with the rise of the Industrial Revolution, it makes it very very dangerous to be drunk on the job you're now dealing with heavy machinery and if something happens and you lose an arm or even possibly die you've now left those women without an income so it became a a woman's issue and and not only that that the woman was supposed to be in control of the domestic that the house and so that made it that they felt like if a man is coming and doing things within their house they can't even control it Um, if they're consuming lots and lots of alcohol. So it became one of the earliest forms of uh, political influence um, that women had to talk about this issue because they could frame it that this is happening inside of our homes. It's not only a public thing. It's something that's happening in our homes, and we're supposed to be in control of our house. Clearly, alcohol was a contentious issue in Sanford at that time. But would saloon odors really burn down the town just despite the residents who voted to ban booze? We don't know when the idea came um, that the saloonists burnt down the town. Um, Mary Leffler Strong writes it, and she wrote this chatty book um, that wasn't published called Sanford on the St. John's. And she really kind of goes through all the gossip. And it's a great resource of, of that. But she writes this in the 1950s. Right. Um, but she, she mentions that the rumor was that the saloonists, that people saw them, like, moving their barrels before they burned down the town. And I don't, I, I don't believe that because <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Think about it. Saloon owners lost a source of income, no doubt. However, many saloonists owned the buildings that their saloons were located in. Would they really destroy their own property in retaliation? So if it's unlikely that saloon owners sparked the Great Fire, how did it start? From, from what we can see in the news articles, that they believed it came from a bakery um, from a man named Mr. DeMont. And uh, Mr. DeMont was one of our uh, German immigrants, in fact. Um, he, came, he came here. Um, we know that he was friends with Joseph Zapp, um, who was in charge of our Anheuser-Busch breweries that we had in Sanford. And at one point, Mr. DeMont did own a saloon, um, but due to probably, we, we don't know exactly what, but he, he eventually went into the baking business instead. So I think that's one of those things that maybe that's where the wires got crossed of, Right. Why we thought the saloon had burnt down the town, but I don't think I, I don't think that's the case. That Mr. Demont was purposely built burning his own bankery as anger that he couldn't have a saloon. That doesn't make any real sense. But it's probably one of those things. After time, wires got, have gotten crossed. For Mr. Demont, 
the Great Fire was just the beginning of his troubles. He, uh, he had unfortunately a, a rough time of it in Sanford. Um, we, we actually know that Mr. Zapp was the executor of his estate. Um, his wife, I believe, was one of our first vic victims of yellow fever here. So Mr. DeMont not only loses his business and causes the fire of the town, but then he loses his wife um, due to yellow fever. So he, he had kind of an unfortunate, sad life, and I believe he died. Um, and he was only in his mid-20s when oh, this wow. happened. Um, so a fairly young, young man. Mr. DeMont's bakery was located near 1st Street and Sanford Avenue. The fire that started there destroyed almost all of Sanford's original downtown. In fact, the town would look unfamiliar to residents today. Yeah, it wouldn't be as recognizable as, as we would think. Um, at that time, it was a lot of wooden structures that were involved. And in fact, in some of the newspaper articles, they make it seem like I don't want to say they're excited that the town has burnt down, but they're like, we'll build the town better and in brick. And so a lot of these brick buildings that we see, especially on First Street, are, are from after the fire. Um, we don't have a lot of um, buildings that exist um, before the Great Fire. That kind of piece of Sanford's history is, is gone for the most part. And that's one of the problems. We don't know too much about this early part of, of Sanford um, because most of our maps and such are coming after the fire. Um, and you have to remember that the town of Sanford, um, the land was purchased in 1870 and by 1877 it became incorporated and then 10 years later it burned down. Surprisingly, the devastation didn't dampen residents' belief in Sanford's future. In fact, it seems residents saw the Great Fire as a great opportunity. The biggest thing that I've noticed is really architecturally, it changes it. It changes it from this wooden town to a brick town. Um, and that doesn't mean a lot, but it also kind of elevates our status in a way. So the fact that we could rebuild in, in a way um, that could be brick. Um, kind of shows that we are willing to, to face anything, which was kind of made the city a little bit more attractive. Um, and, and the fact that they were able to save portions of the city, um, in a weird way, it kind of, um, I don't want to say it was good PR for us, but it at least made it that we were a town that could bounce back. Um, and you have to remember, this as I said, like, it was only 10 years since we were incorporated, and the fact that the town could bounce back from something that big is, I think, was really telling of the resilience of Stanford and made it that, okay, if something bad does happen to this town, we can at least, you know, bounce back. And bounce back Sanford did. Almost all of the buildings we see in downtown today were built after the Great Fire of 1887. The city remained a boomtown, at least until the Great Freeze came along. Typical Florida, right? The heat, no matter the source, never melts or resolve, but a little cold weather will make us brittle. That's a story for later, and you know that story, just like this one, is not one they taught in school. Now did they?
I want to thank Brigitte Stevenson from the Sanford Museum for taking time to answer my questions about the Great Fire. The Sanford Museum is a great resource for those looking to learn about the city's history. The museum is open Tuesday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you're a sports fan, you probably know that Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees broke Roger Maris's home run milestone by hitting 62 home runs in a season. I like to brag that just about everything that happens in the world has some sort of connection to Sanford. In the case of Aaron Judge, it really does. Roger Maris set the record for home runs in a season on October 1, 1961, and it was Sanford's very own Red Barber who made the historic call as the Yankees play-by-play announcer. I'll include a link in the show notes to a YouTube video of Red Barber calling Maris's 61st home run. And if you want to know more about Red Barber, listen to Episode 8 of Celery City Stories titled, A Good Wife and a Strong Martini Help Change History. I'll put a link in the show notes to that episode as well. I want to give a super-duper listener shout-out to someone. This someone, who wishes to remain anonymous, bought me five cups of coffee. If you like Celery City stories and want me to keep telling them, you can buy me a coffee. Go to my website, celerycitystories.com backslash support. Click on the Buy Me a Coffee link and follow the directions. I've got some great stories coming up in the weeks ahead, including one later this month involving one of the most famous athletes in the world. So be sure to tell friends about Celery City Stories. Just tell them to go to the website, CelerySitySTories.com. You can listen to all of the episodes on the website. If you have a favorite podcast player, I've got links to all the major podcast players on the website as well, CelerySitySTories.com. I hope you and your family made it through Hurricane Ian with minimal damage. I appreciate those listeners who reached out to me. Thank you for doing that, and thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with another Celery City story. Have a great week. (laughs) 